You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcasts. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows TRIO programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former TRIO staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with TRIO. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Emilia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In this episode, we have Trent Ball, who is the Associate Vice President for Equity and Access at Southeast Missouri State University. Trent is on the podcast to talk about his educational journey experiences with trio and diving a little bit into the batman lore so coming up in just a bit trent ball so this interview was uh, very exciting for two reasons one we have a trio professional who uh, serves as a vice president for equity and access at his university and college uh, but two we got to dive in a little bit on comic books um, mainly the batman lore You'll hear during the interview uh, how Batman has played a, a, a role in Trent's life. But we also enjoyed the discussion on trio and accountability and what that does look like and uh, what, what it means to be part of a trio program. So again, a great interview coming up with Trent Ball. You too can be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Send us a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Let us know that you want to be part of the podcast. You can also nominate a student, staff, or alum to be part of the podcast. Send us a message with their details. You can also sponsor the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Head on over to Patreon. Look for Let's Talk Trio. We have different levels of patronage. For a dollar a month, you can sponsor the podcast. You can also sponsor us for $5, $10, $15, $20 a month, each with different perks. If you own a business, you can insert your ad on our podcast if you sponsor us for $100 a month. Contact us for details. A big thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Villalpando, Rosario O'Reilly, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the podcast. A great episode with Trent Ball, Associate Vice President for Equity and Access at Southeast Missouri State University, coming up in just a moment. So we hope that you sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. From 
from five, four, three, two, one. Hi, Trio Nation. My guest on the Let's Talk Trio podcast is the Associate Vice President for Equity and Access at Southeast Missouri State University. He is a former Trio staff member for the Student Support Services and McNair Scholars programs. He has also previously supervised the Upward Bound and Gear Up programs. His hobbies include reading, writing, travel, and a vigilante known as Batman, which we'll hopefully get to cover later in the program. He graduated in 1989 with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Criminal Justice at Culver Stockton University, obtained a Master's of Arts in Psychological Counseling and Therapy from SMSU, and also completed a second Master's in Public Administration in 2021 from SMSU as well. Please welcome Trent Ball to the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Trent, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Love to have you here. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast to talk about your educational journey and have a discussion about TRIO, but not only that, about kind of your uh, upbringing and also a, a little bit of a superhero talk, I hope. Oh, definitely. You can't get away from that with me. <laughs> right on, right on. Um, so 2021, uh, 2020 and 2021 for the academic school year was very different and at times very strange for both students and staff at the K through 12th college and college settings. What was your takeaway from this pandemic? We have an advantage. We um, beginning about 10 to 12 years ago, our unit began developing partnerships with college access programs in St. Louis and throughout the state. Mm -hmm. So we had a chance to see K through 12 and higher ed. Oh, wow. Yeah. What I noticed was that, especially when the freshman class started last fall, high school students seemed to adjust better because they were really? probably doing more collective work and had more support in the sense. A lot of us in higher ed just went online, you know, we just kind of move fast as we could. Right. But so many high school students, especially, especially those graduating seniors, they transitioned online, they did some work in the summer. So I kind of saw that a little differently. When the school year started, I saw more of a struggle of the upper class students than the incoming students. Oh, interesting. Um, and what about for you? What changed about your day to day due to this pandemic? Ironically, I thought about that interestingly enough. Yeah. In 2019, unfortunately, I had two different incidents um, that kept me off out of the office for about 10 to 12 weeks. Oh, so no. I became pretty good at using Zoom with the staff. Okay. So I was a little bit ahead of the game there as oh, far as being, right at being at home and having to work from home wasn't as shocking to me because I had done it for that long in 2019. Yeah. So it's something that you've already adapted to, it sounds like. Not completely, but I was ready for it. <laughs> right I, wasn't, I wasn't as thrown off by it. <laughs> okay, right on. Good, fair take. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about what you learned during the, the quarantine uh, slash the pandemic. Did you pick up a new skill or a new hobby? Um, I slept more. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know what I did do? I realized that when you work from home, you probably work more because you're at home. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to work i didn't you know sometimes you feel like i'm gonna stop at five o'clock because it's five o'clock mm -hmm. but when you're at home you kind of work more in spurts i did oh yeah i have a morning spurt i have an afternoon spurt i have an evening spurt so i think it i probably worked a little bit more i probably now here's what i did think was funny people began to assume that you could replicate your office at home we all found out quickly that three zoomies in a row and we were wiped out 
That's true. Very, very, so very alive and in color, you can, you can do maybe three meetings in a day or four meetings in a day and not be as worn out. But I think that paying attention so much and that intensity of, of doing it mm-hmm. changed. Now, for students, what I noticed is a lot of our students, especially in, in the beginning, we would always offer them an opportunity to do a Zoom meeting or do a phone meeting. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, they were, they were really up on the Zoom. By the second semester, it was much more, give me a call, let's talk on the phone. Yeah. So I noticed that with students. With the staff, we all um, restructured ourselves. And so we started having uh, more group meetings versus individual one-on-one meetings. I noticed that. And because we have different units, I probably spent more time with some of the staff I wouldn't have normally spent time with because mm-hmm. we were in this venue. Absolutely. So normally we might meet as a as a full staff once or twice a semester. We did it once a month to keep everybody yeah. connected. Yeah. That's interesting that you pointed out about Zoom and like Zoom exhaustion. It's a real thing, right? Like oh uh, yes. People get exhausted. I could do maybe two meetings on Zoom, but after that it's just tiring to try to keep up with facial expressions and you're trying to get a cue for the, and a read for the for the virtual room, right? Exactly. Also, I think that you get um, you get distracted. We yeah. all got used to having two or three devices on our desk, two or three devices on the bed with us, two or three devices. I think we all thought it was going to be a lot more um, comfortable than it turned out to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I noticed uh, on some of the Zoom meetings that, that I attended uh, in my professional life is that uh, most more people were comfortable turning their cameras off and then we were tr- encouraged to turn the cameras on but that w- that seemed a little bit more exhausting having the camera on well I, I used to think to myself when the camera goes off that means they're not really paying attention <laughs> that's true <laughs> are they are they are they are they multitasking but then what i realized <laughs> was i live in a rural area uh-huh. normally and so we would have to sometimes if 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 everybody was on we would we would have constant spottiness Ah, Sometimes yeah. we would have to go off. Now, I work with an organization in St. Louis, and I tell you what is interesting, though. We developed, we expanded an organization that we work with called the Post-Secondary Equity Network in our state. Mm-hmm. And it had begun in November 19. And so by the time we got to the middle of 2020, it actually gave us a really good outlet. We were having meetings once a month with 80 to 100 people from across the state just connecting to talk about what's actually going on in higher ed. Yeah, we also had a group of um, professional development institutes with high school counselors, and they were every other Friday. And we'd have bunch of folks on there because people really wanted to connect. Mm-hmm. So I thought that you know, as we all come out of this, I hope that we become a lot more flexible. Yeah, you know, I believe to connect and more comfortable with hybrid than we were before. I, I like that concept there, Trent. I think that uh, having this hybrid idea of, of virtual meetings or in-person meetings and then being able to um and there was a discussion not too long ago with uh, uh again in my professional life about if we were to do uh, you know these large committee meetings could they be done virtually uh or can we compromise somewhere where they can be sometimes in person and sometimes virtually so i'm watching us i'm watching the true world plan for the fall mm-hmm and I, what I noticed was people are, are offering virtual in the fall, but things I see in the spring are live and in color. Oh, yeah. And I think higher ed, I mean, we all 
I, I, I kind of fit. So they're colleagues of mine in the true world. There are five or four of us, and sometimes five of us, who've been friends for a long time. And so beginning probably April 2020, we would have um, Friday meetings. Mm-hmm. And five different institutions, very similar positions, very good conversations. And we talked about how how um, that was necessary. It, it was like keeping up with each other. Right. We would have had conferences to go to, our connections that weren't being made. Mm-hmm. And I saw one of my colleagues recently, she did an interview and it was really so cool. I realized I haven't seen her like in that kind of setting in a year and a half. Yeah. We were, we were kind of like, hey, you know, it's time to get back to those kind of connections. So I sat down with the staff about a week ago. We started talking, saying, OK, what things that we relax because of the pandemic that we have to probably put back in place? What's our timetable? Yeah, like we were very forgiving on a lot of things that we probably need to slowly put the guardrails back in place. And so we kind of talked and because it's summertime, we have very few. We have a few students working. We have a couple of grad students working and I brought them in and start having the conversation about, okay, so what felt different? What should we do? Let's look at our contracts and what things that we thought we couldn't do that we were able to pull off Mm -hmm. that we should keep in place. And then what things should we let go of? And one thing that the students talked about is let's keep in place the idea of at least for the fall semester, your one-on-one meetings have the option ah, yeah. of virtual or in person. We're obviously going to go back to, ver- back to live and in color. And, and they said, let's ease into that. Yeah. So we, we all, we added, we put it back in the contract. You can either come in, you can make a virtual meeting or make a phone call. Right on. Right on. So it sounds like a lot of one adjusting and figuring out compromises and ways to accommodate uh, colleagues and, and people to kind of ease back into this to the new normal. Right. Exactly. Right on. Right on. Uh, Trent, what did you learn most about yourself during this time, during the pandemic, during the quarantine? What did you learn mo- most about yourself? That I wasn't before the pandemic. I wasn't making enough time to read. Ah, what makes you say that? Were you were you like a very avid reader before the pandemic? Very much so. Okay. And I think that I no, I thought I was a very avid reader before the pandemic. <laughs> you know, but because I would, the pandemic forced me to get myself off the computer. Like I used to have a rule. Mm-hmm. I used to have one night, no phone, no computer. Read. Okay. But because I was on the computer most of the day, it became many more nights, mm-hmm. no phone, no computer, and read. Yeah. And now. Like, I don't even bring my Surface into my bedroom anymore. Oh, so a new habit. I, lo- I leave it out on the desk and I read more. So that helped. Now, now if I can stop doing it, if I could leave the phone out there too. It'd be, it'd be <laughs> Definitely, right? It's, it's one one vice at a time, right? It's, exactly. it's right. <laughs> easier so far. We all did that. We had our phone on desk to us. We had our, our computer on. We were running. And so I said, okay, now we're going to we're gonna do. I'm, I've gotten the. I've gotten the, the surface out of the bedroom. Now, if I get the phone out, or at least move the phone away from my. I can't reach it. Yeah. It, yeah. But then, yeah, then I say I'm reading on the phone, so it's still reading. I'm a. I, I tread, and I, I do that too. I so I prefer the eBooks. To be perfectly honest, I, I prefer reading on the book, uh, the books on on my phone. And see, I, I'm just the, I'm just the opposite. I have a Kindle. I've I've never used it. Never used a Kindle. Okay. Oh, so you have a Kindle, but you just never used it. Ah, I am a book guy, but that comes from the comic books too. Oh, okay. That's where that comes from. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I like books, I like the smell of it. I like the, 
I give books out all the time. I'm, I'm a book guy. Okay. We, we got to know. So the audience I'm sure is wondering what type of books you read or what type of books you would recommend. I am always reading some kind of leadership book mm-hmm. or some kind of, you know, I'm a therapist in training. So some kind of self-help book right now, I'm reading a whole lot of, of course, what we're all reading a lot of, a lot of critical race theory, a lot of diversity, yeah. a lot of inclusion, but I've, I also try to balance it out. So for example, Hmm, let me think. The last thing I've read that I read because I wanted to read it, mm-hmm. it wasn't because I wanted to quote unquote learn from it, was a student gave me. This is going to sound so hilarious. I had never really played a video game before. Okay. Yeah. Not, I, I, miss, my, my, I missed that time period, blah, blah, blah. He <laughs> explained to me one of, the, one of the great stories about Mortal Kombat. I said, oh, and so we so going back and forth. Yes, so yeah. I dug up my old copy of The Art of War. Mm hmm. And I gave him a copy and I started reading it again. I read it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And then there used to be so many versions of it. The Art of War for Managers, The Art of War for Leaders, The Art of War for Women. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have it on my shelf and I kind of start going backwards and seeing how much stuff I actually read before that I was using that I didn't know I was using because I read. Oh, that sounds weird. So I realized I do use a lot of the things I learned from The Art of War and some of the things I plan. That is very interesting. Very interesting. So you take a lot of the lessons from previous books you've read, uh, one in particular, The Art of War, and you take some of those lessons and you implement it. I didn't realize that that's what, you know, you read it so long ago. Yeah. That became part of my quote unquote strategic thinking. I'm like, uh-huh. oh, okay. That's where that came from. Very, very interesting. Um, some of the books that I've been reading, uh, so even prior to Prior to the pandemic, I thought of myself just like you. I thought I was a, a very heavy reader, I, but I didn't realize that I was really reading solely to keep up with my practice, with everything that I do with at, at Colorado State. I didn't realize that it was just all strictly kind of work related. It was during the pandemic that I started picking up book for leisure books for leisure reading. Right. Uh, so yeah, I started reading a little bit more science fiction. Uh, I actually read uh, some books on uh, social justice issues. Um, that was very, very interesting, but uh, a lot more on science fiction uh, than I had before. And I, re- I didn't realize that I was missing a lot on a lot of reading. Well, sometimes as professionals, we don't, we don't always realize that there are many different venues mm-hmm. for learning. And we don't connect them together. We feel like, you know, and then think about it in the work that we do with you, you're reading to write, you're reading to respond, you're reading to keep up. And how much do we just relax and read? Right. Oh, I completely agreed on that end. Um, so now with this, it seems like we're nearing the end of this pandemic. And uh, again, with the end being near with this, more people are going out and we're doing things that we used to do prior to the pandemic. What did you miss the most? And are you looking, what are you looking forward to doing? Seeing my colleagues. At seeing your colleagues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I haven't, I haven't seen one of my friends in 18 months. And we Ooh. we would have seen each other three or four times a year easily mm-hmm. just through our through our state, our regional, our national, our training conference. And so yeah. that. And actually, um, I, pre- I follow the rules pretty good. So, my, uh, you know, we, a lot of us got vaccinated in time. We spend time together. We st- we've done that. I am a... I'm a driver, so I I will leave on a Sunday and go to a city two hours away to drive and shop. Oh, 
but okay. I hadn't I haven't done that since March 2020. So you're looking forward to that at least yes, the driving I part, the traveling, going out, shopping a little bit. Uh, start the first Batman reference. Every if I'm at home on a Sunday, <laughs> uh-huh. I always take a graphic novel and I go to lunch. All right. Go to the same Thai restaurant. I sit at the same table. They know me. Mm-hmm. And I keep uh, books in my car for that purpose. If I'm driving, if I want to stop and get something to eat, if I want to relax, if I forget something to read. And so I'm very consistent about that. that, I, miss that. I miss driving to Paducah yeah. and reading a Batman novel while eating at a restaurant by myself. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So we're actually going to dive into your childhood now, and we're going to talk about kind of our influences. So let's take a minute to rewind and explore your life a bit, Trent. Can you tell us about your childhood and your upbringing? Uh, the funny part I always say is I was an only child, and people always say, oh, you're spoiled. You can't be spoiled and be poor at the same time. <laughs> but what I did understand is as an only child, you do get the attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to think about that. You know, I've been a therapist. You always go back and look at things. Mm-hmm. I never, I never felt out of a conversation when I was a kid. You know, my parents, my grandparents, my uncles—they always talk, talk right in front of me and took me everywhere. So, you know, unless I got in trouble, I felt like I was one of them. Mm-hmm. So as long as I was acting right, I was like regular part of the team. Yeah. So I grew up in um, North Side of St. Louis, and ironically, you know, I've talked to my talked to about this recently. Uh, I was in that age where they started in urban areas doing a lot of desegregation programs. Mm. And we did not think that was a good idea. So when it became, um, when the schools started talking about, uh, you know, we have opportunities for students and everything, we decided that I would go from a public school to a private school rather than being bused out to a county school. Okay. So in eighth grade, in eighth grade, I started and then I went to eighth, ninth, 10th grade at Catholic school. But in St. Louis, we have magnet schools, Mm -hmm. which which I look back now on as seeing the public version of a structured charter school. Hmm. It was it was an excellent high school. And so and, you know, transferring from a private school to what what was a public school, in a sense, I assumed automatically that I'd be ready to go. Mm-hmm. No, I was behind. They were an accelerated school. Oh wow! And so I got in. I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is gonna be hard." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, but I will say that even now, at my age, if I had to give credit to any college preparation, it was at high school. It was a high school. It was structured like a college. Our classes were Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. They were the same kind of idea. It was called a school without walls. And so you, you always had one or two courses a semester that were not in the building. Mm-hmm. So you got used to getting to class. You got used to the timing of it. You wrote your schedule like you did in college. And so coming from 10th grade, a very structured Catholic high school, to a very college prep experience in 11th grade was like a shock. Yeah. And you expected to get all this done. You know, so I got my first job around that time, too. So it all circled at the same time. But I was always the kid who was, I was always reading. Mm -hmm. I think because you, as an only kid, somebody said one day, when I think back to time periods, I I remember sitting in some department store in a chair with a book and my mom's purse on my lap. (laughs) So I was with her. And so Mm -hmm. she was shopping, I was reading. So I think that's why it kept up like that. 
Yeah. And she was, my mom was an avid reader. So I think it was really, it was passed on. Yeah. So yeah, I was about to say, so part of mom kind of rubbed off on you, the avid reading part, the always having something to read uh, with you. And then, you know, I was at the time period where they were doing all those different things. We were, I was in the time period where they did tracking and it was okay to do tracking. Mm. So I, when I look about, when I think from five to eighth grade, before I went to Catholic school, I was in the group, I was group number three. There were seven of us mm. and we were always doing accelerated work. Wow. So I remember that. I thought, and, I, and actually I'm still friends with two of those people and we talked about that maybe a year ago. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Where now you can never do that. You can never track kids now. Yeah. Back then they did it. And I remember it clearly. Wow. In fact, the joke I told was I was, um, I remember, I can't think what grade this was, maybe third or fourth. And I don't know if they even do this now, but we used to have, um, you had a, a book, a glossy book that had the work in it. Then you had a practice pad that you wrote and you couldn't write in the main book. Mm -hmm. And so I would take the big, I would take the book home and do all the work. And then to do what I wanted to do. So teach them one of my assignment. Here it is. And I'll keep on doing what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I'll get in trouble. Because <laughs> I'll be, hey. In fact, I remember when I, got, when I was in high school at the magnet school. Um, and, and it was interesting because this school, we had really, I didn't understand how this actually worked, but we had administrators who I think were probably closer to retirement that came there to teach. Mm -hmm. So like our business law professor had been a principal at another school. Mm -hmm. And I remember we took a class, we took a test and I asked my friend about something that was on the test. She said, that wasn't on the test. Said, yes, it was. She said, no, it wasn't. What I found out was her test was chapter one through three. And my test is chapter one through six. Oh, and he said that you're so busy and you're always trying to get ahead. So I didn't know that I was, that he was doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you were doing just the extra work then. Well, but I was also, you know, I was, always, I, I was a kid who wanted to read ahead and ask a bunch of questions. Mm, yeah. yeah. So he was, he was, he was tuning me up pretty good. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And I, when I confronted him about it, he said, well, <laughs> I told you to study chapters one through six. Cause he would give us, you, you would get your, you would get your packet to study from. Yeah. So I didn't think about any of packet. I assumed we all had the same packet. Yeah. Nope. My packet was different. <laughs> <laughs> Always like to get ahead, Trent. You, you like it, kept, it, it, like kept me it kept me quiet though it was funny yeah. <laughs> so that was a good thing his part yeah um how would your parents describe you were you very curious attentive or always on the move i, I have i had a slick mouth because my mom had a slick mouth what do you mean by that trent can you talk, talk you know, to you a little smart about I, was, I was a smart mouth kid <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm asking a bunch of questions i'm gonna catch you on something uh -huh. <laughs> you know, my, my mom would say, because, because, because I'm the mother. And I was like, well, so what does that mean? Oh, you were that kid. Oh yeah. <laughs> and because we lived, you know, my, my grandma lived a block over. So it was kind of weird. Even though I was the only kid, if you look at my house, mm. when I say my grandmother, it was me, her and my aunt, but the two doors up, I had six cousins. Mm. So I would go up there you know, for the group fund and then run home for got in trouble. Then my aunt just called down there, I get in trouble down there. So I, I, I could live in both worlds. At <laughs> night I was the only child. Yeah. But I could play with them and I could run and you know, they were I was the youngest at up there. Mm -hmm. 
Now I can talk about I can connect it to the influence as well. Both my cousins, the next two cousins, both went to college. But both went both girls and both went as athletes. Oh. So my cousin Anita, she was an all around. She played uh softball, basketball, and volleyball. So she actually went to school debt free. My cousin uh Barbara, she was a track runner. And she ended up actually leaving at that time period, University of Missouri, Columbia, to go to Arizona State, which is one of the big track schools forever mm-hmm. on a really good scholarship. And so when they were home at Christmas breaks, it was always neat to talk to them about what they were learning. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that sparked my minor in history because my cousin Barbara majored in history. Oh. And we, 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 we play cards and play games and we were talking wow. the whole time. And I was always fascinated with what they were learning. And so that kind of, I saw, even though it wasn't in my direct house, mm. I saw it regularly. Yeah. So I, I'm sure they had a big influence on that. What was your cousin studying that drew you in, that, that you really gravitated toward or you really liked or latched onto? The, 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 his, the history part of how things changed. Huh. Like we would talk about, this is the 70s, 80s. Uh-huh. And we would talk about what I remember that was big was politics and the people who were in charge of what they looked like. At the time in St. Louis, we had, we got our first African-American male mayor. Mm-hmm. And so, and I had a teacher in seventh grade, Mrs. Davenport, who was our government and, and a history teacher. Mm-hmm. And so she really did make it interesting. Hmm. And so I always read them. When I was in college, I think I ended up getting those 21 hours because I liked Dr. Lee. I took all his classes. I didn't think about that as that was my electives I took. I was like, oh, okay. And he taught some interesting classes. He taught us stuff that was interconnected. Mm-hmm. So I remember way back learning who the governor was, who the mayor was, what that meant. And I was a part of all those little, all those little government groups when you were a kid, like student government and uh, state student government and all that just because I liked it. I didn't always stay with it, though. I thought about that. I didn't always stay with it because kind of, it used to bore me sometimes. Mm, okay. Okay. But I that probably connected to my, my true advocacy piece. Yeah. Because way back in seventh grade, we were going to the Capitol and, and you know, seeing stuff. Amazing. So I, I think about you know, growing up and, and the various interests one might have as a child. Uh, for you growing up, um, history, uh, reading. Um, I know for me, superheroes and Saturday morning cartoons kind of were like the dominant thing. Um, as I grew up, the superheroes part stayed. Are there any childhood relics from your, from your era where, whether it's shows or otherwise that you hold on to, or you bring, or bring you a sense of nostalgia? <laughs> you should, if you can see my, my office at the university uh-huh. is on the tour. Oh, really? So in my office, there are, uh, I have two, I have a conference room and then I have my office. There are, are about 200 superhero figures. Oh, wow. And there are, there are posters. And actually it's, it's right now the conference room is all Alex Ross, Justice League pictures. Oh, wow. And my office has on the right wall, the six foot Alex Ross Batman and the six foot Alex Ross Wonder Woman. Wow. But across from me, there is Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and uh, Black Panther. Wow. 
and recently I moved and so I downsized and for the, it was painful but I actually took 100 uh, Batman collectibles to the women's safe house oh wow so I went through my collection I kept everything that was truly a quote unquote collectible mm -hmm. but everything else went to the kids oh that's amazing no it's still painful yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it was something that you collected, right? And it was part of you. It, it was time. It was time, it to, was time. To, to move that app. Oh, so so I, I've got to ask. Okay, so I'll share it with you. I'm so I'm a Marvel fan. Uh, Spider Man is my absolute favorite superhero. I got to ask, why Batman? And why is Batman kind of like the your your go to superhero? Why why do you like to study him? Why do you what what is it about Batman? Well, actually, I'll, I'll agree with you. I'm a Spider Man fan as well. Okay. Uh, I got and I'll, I'll be honest with it. I got I got into Spider-Man after the first set of movies. Oh, OK. But I watched it as a kid when it was on when it was on a cart, but it wasn't nearly as advanced as it is now. Hmm. And I, yeah. I have the full run of that first set of Ultimate Spider-Man. Mm, OK. The yeah, comic yeah. is different. I have about 15,000 comics. Wow. So that is a large collection. Very, I, I know now because I had to move every damn thing. But, uh, <laughs> I had that full run of Ultra Spider-Man right after the first movie came out that went from one to 115. I have those. Wow. I just saw them the other day. My comic book guy keeps wanting to buy stuff from me. I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, so you're really holding out. Oh, yeah. Batman is my favorite character. He always has been. Actually, I didn't did papers about him when I was in grad school. Oh. Because Batman is... Uh, survivor of post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. the death of his hands yeah he's also the smartest person in the room that's, that's, he's not that, always he's yeah. not always liked he's not he's not always liked he's not always trying to be good but he's dedicated to the mission that absolute dedication to the mission i think uh is very that's a, a pull for batman for sure because uh, many other superheroes have uh, gray areas or, or moral gray areas, but Batman seems to be very set on what is justice to him, right? A little crazy. <laughs> I can appreciate that. I'm not. Always, I'm not always proud of him. He's kind of. Sometimes he can be kind of, you know, beside himself <laughs> a little bit. But over the years, it's uh -huh. been an interesting character. Absolutely. Now, now a lot of my younger staff will always look at me kind of strange. Oh yeah. But then I, I loan them a couple of movies. They come back and say, that's a lot of strategy in there. People don't know this. One of the top writers who died about five years ago for the, for the animated movies, mm -hmm. he, was a NASA, he was a NASA physicist. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Dwayne McDuffie. Wow. And what makes me mad is I knew James Tucker when he lived in Memphis 20 years ago. I should stay friends with him. Mm -hmm. Now he's the no more producer of Batman animated, I mean, DC animated universe. Wow. Now I'm not I'm not the Comic Con kind of person. Mm. That that part is a little bit too much for me. Mm -hmm. I've gone one or two times. It's been way too much money. Mm -hmm. But I'm that's not what I'm there for. When I go to the comic shop, I'm not going to be playing the the cause. I don't know any what that even actually means. I am the comic strategy reader. Ah, so you're following the storyline, and you're following. You're really curating the collections that you're 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 taking on oh, right like if oh, it's a batman story you're following it all the way through and you're curating that storyline but i'm also like maybe three is behind it oh. i don't have the time so <laughs> when, I, when i had when i was out for those 12 weeks i probably read a thousand comics wow 
I mean, I, I can read, but there's two rules I learned when I was a kid. Hmm. I don't read a story to it's complete. I, I can't do that wait month to month now. Hmm. DC had a series called 52 where there was 52 issues per story. Yeah. I didn't read it the whole story was done. Hmm. I can't, I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that part. And I will have the single issues and I will get the graphic novel to read so I can preserve the single issues. Okay. Yeah. So you're very much so a, but, the, the Batman connoisseur, I think you're, you have a very particular taste about the, the comic that you, that you collect and the storylines that, that you collect as well. Very much so. Okay. Very cool. So I'm sure this, this conversation is going to come back up again uh, later on in the program, but I, I want you to think back on your first memories of school and what did you enjoy most about it? <laughs> this is what I thought about recently. I didn't know. Okay. I have a friend of mine. Actually, of course, we're true together. We used to actually start off with true together. So she's married. She has a, she has a eight year old uh-huh. and she's homeschooling him. Okay. We were talking about this. We, we, we started off a trio together back in 1994. So her little boy, uh, RJ is eight. Mm-hmm. We were talking about homeschooling, um, black and brown boys. And she said that I think if my son was in school, cause he's so active and he, he needs to be engaged so heavily, they mm-hmm. would think that that was a problem. As we start talking about it, I said, what do you mean? So we're talking and she said, you know, they have the curriculum and everything. And she's, she's in Illinois, which has a very structured homeschooling process. Uh-huh. And so she was, she, she said, I didn't, I, I didn't realize until I started, he could already read. Oh, wow. And so we started talking about that. And I remember getting in trouble when I was a kid, cause I could already read too. Mm-hmm. She put the rope on the board. She started saying, I would say cat, dog. And I didn't know that that was what that was. I didn't get it. Yeah. And so I remember my grandmother coming up to the school to talk to the teacher about it mm-hmm. and saying that my grandmother saying, give that boy some more work. So when I was in third grade, they were going to promote me. And she said, no, she said no to the promotion. Yeah. She said, no, oh. they're going to stay in that grade, give him some more work. So it became somewhat of a challenge. Mm-hmm. And my perception is I remember my dad was a cop for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. But I remember I thought it was cool that while he was sitting at the table trying to do study for the cop stuff, mm-hmm. I was playing with the fun pad. But I yep. thought that we were both like equal, which is weird to say. But, you know, I thought I'm doing my work, too. So it was always encouraged to do that. Yeah. If we went to the store, if I asked for a toy, I might not get it. If I asked for a book, I did so that's kind of my early memory of that. I remember thinking when my mom passed, oh my God, I found out that she even had some damn practice pads from like when I was like a kid. Wow, really? Yeah. I'm like, what the, you know how you're cleaning everything? I'm like, what is this? And it was, it had to be, my mom passed five years ago. So that would, they had to be 35 years old. Yeah. Maybe even older. So Trent, that the, so first off, I mean, um, yeah, hearing about your mom uh, sorry about you know you losing your mind oh, it's been five years but uh uh to have that memory of right of what she's held on to and kind of like what your uh, uh 
your your habits with school already kind of already developing so i'm curious to know uh, from middle school as you transition from elementary to middle school did that carry over yeah i always i i was i was rewarded for doing well academically okay so it was a good competition i remember one year i got goldfish because i got all a's now but please transparent I always got an in in behavior because I was always out of my chair asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I have all A's and like an in needs improvement. <laughs> I, one of our report card talked about that. One of yeah. uh, some teacher was like, he's such a great, if he could just stay in his seat, now I'm going to have none of that. <laughs> so I remember that part. Yeah. And that got me in trouble too because I did not get something. I don't, some kind of honor I didn't get mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I got in trouble. And I remember that too. I can't remember what it what it was. It was something in junior high, but I, my because I had that in in conduct, I didn't get the award. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Well, I, I remember my parents telling me that everything after middle school counts. As you transition from middle school to high school, do you remember? Do you remember something about that time? And and do you, did you receive similar advice about you know after middle school everything's going to count? Yeah, because I was going to I was in the private school. Mm -hmm. And so they were drilling and it was interesting because those kids had been together from one through eight. I didn't know them then. Oh. I met them all in eighth grade. Yeah. So I wasn't always fully part of that crew. And they were, this is interesting. I thought you made me think about it. And they were um, probably working middle class and I was on scholarship. Mm -hmm. And even though I think they try to remind me of that, I was beating them in grade, so it didn't matter. Well, there'd be a smart comment, you know. Yeah. But, but I, my grade's better than U.S. Anchor. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the transitions, I think, too, was um, the challenge of it. So, you know, you become a 16-year-old and you get your first job. And, you know, my grandma used to always say, if these grades start dropping, you know, you, you'll quit that job and you're going you know, so it's it's interesting how those th those things were really connected. And my grandmother, even though she never went to college, there's a funny joke about the fact that, and I remember seeing this twice. She passed away when I was 20. But everybody who uh, got went to high school of her kids and me, she always took a picture in their capping gown. Huh. So I remember a picture of her in my high school capping gown. Oh wow. She said, these all belong to me. Yeah. I, I think that's hilarious to think about that. I never thought about it to the, again until this moment, but I, I yeah. can see the picture on the mantle of her in the caps and gowns. Because they were important to her. Yeah. It was, education was always important to her. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any extra extracurricular activities you participated in while you made that transition to high school and you got into high school? Mm, just the regular stuff, you know. Actually, you know what's interesting? Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, everybody's talking about right now. She tells a story about uh, the swimming pools in St. Louis, and that was part of my time period. Mm -hmm. So recently, she was on 60 Minutes, and I realized that she was talking about what happened to us. And so we would go swimming at the public pool. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know, I didn't think about this until this year. 
you had to be out of the pools at a certain time. I never understood that, but we did. But what I found out in her book was they would drain the pools mm-hmm. and then the white kids would come. Huh. So I was, the, you know, we, we, we went to the park. We played. I played anybody's anything with a ball in the bat. We mm-hmm. swam. We did skateboards. I still probably got scars on my knees from skateboards. But we didn't do a lot of the we didn't have the money for the structured sports. Mm. So, you know, I remember to pay to play in a softball league was 30 bucks a month. And we had 30 bucks a month to do that. Yeah. But it, it didn't matter, though. We just played on. The, we just played our own. Right. So I didn't understand. You know, I didn't feel, quote unquote, we were poor. Mm-hmm. I knew what it meant to say we go into the store and I'm not buying you nothing. <laughs> you know, but I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If I have a book, I'll get it, something like that. But this is how that worked. One transition I do remember though is I do remember, like I said, when I transferred schools and for the first time I was at the very beginning, I was not at the top of the class. Mm. And that was a shocker to me. Yeah. I had to actually do a different level of work. Huh. It was good. It was good for me though. Yeah. Absolutely. I need that. Absolutely. Trent, before we move on on to the podcast, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back more with uh, Trent Ball. We'll talk about a little bit about his college journey and his experience in Trio. Excellent. So, Trent, we're going to take a quick 10, 15 second break. I'm going to fill up my water bottle here so I can uh, do the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's take a quick 10, 15 minutes, 10, 15 second break, and I'll be right back. Gotcha. Awesome. and access at SMSU. Uh, Trent, thank you again so much for sharing your your thoughts. And so far, you've shared your, your life with us. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about high school and your kind of transition from there, from, from high school to, uh, into college. But talk to us a little bit about that college thinking process. Uh, were you thinking about college during high school? Yes. As I said earlier, I had two cousins that went to college. And even though they went as athletes, I also knew that it was important to take that path. Mm-hmm. Now, ironically, I was thinking about this recently, especially in the work that I do. Uh-huh. And so we always have, because I recruit students from the city that I came out of, I've been able to watch what's happened over the last 30 years at, at the high schools, at the that are DCA programs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought about was our high school counselor 
always talked about college with us. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we're talking about this is the 80s. And Jerry was always, but we were always so heavily motivated that, and competitively, like for example, your senior year, everybody had a class on a college campus. So I had my, my biology and my um, English were mm-hmm. St. Louis Community College. Mm-hmm. So I think that familiarity of the college scheduling, of the framing, and because we were uh, magnet schools, when, when recruiters came to the school, they really engaged with us because we were strong students. Mm-hmm. And so I, we, about a year ago, I was talking to superintendent. I was saying, how did you get it right 30 years ago? You're struggling now. Hmm. Well, I have to think about it. I went to a magnet school that you had to get into through a lottery. Mm-hmm. And so my graduating class was 37. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get that classroom at 15. You can have all those things when you have a small magnet school. Yeah, absolutely. The running joke I was telling somebody a couple years ago was when I got to college, we were told, and I will I, I love her and be mad at her forever. Our English professor told us in high school that cliff notes were illegal. <laughs> oh. So I had never seen them before. I thought they were some things you had to get in like an alley someplace. So when I got to college the first time I went to the books so they were sitting there on the rack, I was like, wait a minute. I read all that trash for nothing. You know I mean? how many hours, how long it took me to read the Odyssey and the Iliad as a 17 year old? But she said, you can't use them, they're legal. So I didn't ever think you could even do that. Yeah. Now the advantage was when, when I got to high school in college English, I didn't, I, I, I clapped out of it. I never took English class in college. I clapped out of it. Oh, nice. Because yeah. she had got us so prepared. But you know, I still want to fight her. <laughs> on another level for making us do that. I mean, I can remember seeing on that rack the Iliad. I was like, oh my God, you can't you can't sell these out here like this. You have to and they, people were laughing at me and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Cynthia Beasley lied to us. But yeah. that's the kind of high school we were though. Ironically, I, I don't know if like in your generation it would probably be Glee. In our generation it was an old TV show called Fame. Mm. We were the same age as they were. Mm-hmm. And we really did have a high school with that kind of culture to it. Mm-hmm. We really were, you know, we were all together. We were, you know, I, now am I, I, I used to get, I used to get to school at 647 in the morning. Whoa. How is that possible? I think now you'd have to have a gun on me to get me up there early. <laughs> but in high school, that's what we did. And yeah. so we were always there. We were always connected. We were, always doing something and that's i think that really goaded us mm-hmm. and when we graduated i mean don't get me wrong our principal was was a trailblazer in, in education in st louis mm-hmm. and when we you know when you graduated from metro even today i have two of those kids from from metro high school in the class from 2021 no three wow. three students and our high school still has a 90 percent college graduation rate wow that's impressive that's impressive it's still small i think i mean i think isaiah said they're about 200 we we show my age was so isaiah's mother knew was was in the class way after mine that's how old i felt oh wow she said as isaiah's the class of 20 and she was the class of what did she tell me 90 
83 or something and i was class of 85 i was like jesus christ <laughs> it was funny though <laughs> to see that but and at my at my university i've been working there as fresh as 94 we've mm -hmm. only had one student from my high school that didn't graduate wow so there's a, a a deep part it runs deep with that with that structure. absolutely that, that's still a very impressive um at this point so for many high school students thinking about college they they've, they have a college list um and i know for me i being an upper trio upper bound student i uh, you know our director talked to us about college and we we had this college coaching but i really didn't think about colleges until my senior year of, of college and really there's only one college i wanted to uh, apply to but for you did you have multiple colleges that you were thinking about or was there one particular college that you really wanted to attend there are multiple colleges actually there's always a funny story so Let's i was it. offered a uncf scholarship and so I thought you can go wherever you want to go. Right. I thought they gave you the scholarship to pick your school. This small private school in Northwest Missouri, because I, I know I want to stay in Missouri. Mm -hmm. The small private school in Northwest Missouri, they were very smart on how, to, even way back then, they kept up with you. Yeah. You got a call, you got a birthday card, you got a Christmas card, you, know, you got all this stuff. So mm -hmm. I said I was going to go there. Then they told me, that you have to go to one of these 39 schools on this list because mm -hmm. that's where your scholarships were. And I remember arguing with the guy saying, well, if, you, if you're trying to tell me that, you know, it's a scholarship for a black kid, why would you send a black kid to a, what we now call PWI to show the competitiveness of a black kid? Mm -hmm. Why would you limit me to going to one of these black schools? Because one big thing about Metro High School was, it was desegged right down to the number. Hmm. So in our graduating class, there were 18 black kids, black and brown kids, mm -hmm. and 19 white kids. In fact, I didn't get in my freshman and sophomore year because they have full class. Mm -hmm. So I was used to competing and black and brown kids being the top of the class. So I told this guy, I will never support UNCF. I'm not giving him a big old speech. Hmm. 20 years later, I was on the board in UNCF mm -hmm. in Missouri and actually helped, they helped us build our partnership program. God does to me all the time. I'll, I'll make some kind of big declaration to prove me wrong. But it was because Cedric's Entertainer had a scholarship through UNCF and he was a, he's an alum of Southeast. And mm -hmm. so I connect, we connected with him and I worked on the foundation as I got back to UNCF. But so I, I knew I knew I was going to cover Stockton when I was a junior. Either that or slew. Yeah. And I ended up getting a decent scholarship and da 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 da. So it didn't it didn't it didn't change anything. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. And when you decided on this college, uh, why did you choose this uh, college or this uh, particular school in, in particular? What was it about that that drew you? We visited. Um, it looked like the college on TV, which is funny, but you know, it looked like, it looked like what you see on TV, mm -hmm. the big buildings, the, the pillars, the, it had that look to it. We went, we went to visit the admissions person that took us and everything knew us. You know, from different schools, they knew what schools we were from. They talked about our stuff. They talked about I declared major. I had a chance to meet 
the professor that was going to be my advisor. It was a school of 2000, so it wasn't a big school at all. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of connection felt like my high school. Mm. It was small. People knew each other. It was comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it felt like the collegiate experience. If I did it over again, I would. Went, I still would go there. You still go there, even if. So, given the option to do it all over again, I would still pick go the there. same school. Okay, okay. Um, so I was in St. Louis. I could see my. I could be home in two hours. Yeah, if something happened. So it was good. Right on, right on. Before before going to college, can you talk to us about your grad your graduating moment from high school? What was that moment like for you and your family? I worked at the at a grocery store. I was mm-hmm. a bagger and a and a part time cashier. Mm-hmm. I remember the most about it was it was so cool that so many of my people from the job came to graduation. Really? So you had a lot of support. Mm-hmm. You know, my my, my the, actually the woman who was who was sneaking teaching me how to be a ch- cashier, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. I, I I got pictures of her, me and her, and my grandma. Oh, that's sweet. And then we graduated, um, even though we were high school, we graduated because we were small school. We gra- we didn't even have a auditorium. We graduated on the community college's campus mm-hmm. where we all took, we took classes as well. Wow. And it was always a big deal. Now, we, there was a funny story because, you know, we were, we were mischievous too. So <laughs> the day of practice, we had changed the music from pomp and circumstance to some art uh run dmc song <laughs> and our principal gave it to us <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was i remember that because i was part of that group that you know i mean your final year you you have to do something kind of stand out and special so yeah we we know we've been doing it all the time unfortunately <laughs> uh, we, you took your you, we took our um art classes at Vision Forming Art School. Mm-hmm. So we would always, we, we would have uh, dance, recitals of dance activities. And I remember this was the big Michael Jackson time and blah, blah, blah. And we were practicing for some kind of show. And Betty came out and said, if you want to hear that Thriller song again, you better hum it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 4.30. We'd been, we'd been practicing <laughs> 2 o'clock. I'm sure yeah. she was tired of hearing it. you know. And this is back in the day where you actually, you would have to play the record or the cassette over and over again. Oh, it wasn't right, right. time. So I knew it drove her crazy, but you got 13 of us sitting there humming Thriller song while you're practicing. I remember that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. We were always, we were really smart kids, but we were also yeah. just as mischievous. Oh yeah. Okay. Not too bad though, because she she ran with she ran us with an iron hand. One time there was an incident about some kids on the public bus, and the next morning her her favorite line was, "This is not Metro. We don't behave like this." Ooh. Now fast forward in college and in my current career, the something some of the things on the contract that my students have with us uh-huh. came from that time period. Oh, so you carried some of that over. Yes, I did. There, I have to explain all the time that number 12 is more turpitude. If you violate student code of conduct, you can lose your scholarship. Oh. And that's how I was at Metro. And that's how I was at Culver Stockton. Now, you know, I, I'm going to give you a mulligan. You know how that is. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the rule the rule laid out there. Absolutely. They yeah. know before, right? Like, they, they know the rules. They know what oh, they're yeah. supposed to be doing. So, yeah. Our student, every student that gets an award from us will be getting an electronic contract July 2nd. Yeah. 
And they, the first, they had the first weeks of the semester to come in and talk to their counselor. They read through it. They sign it again. We remove all that out of the way. Mm-hmm. The trio teaches the structure. Absolutely. So from your, your transition from high school to college, must have been a different experience altogether. Can you talk to us about that, that transition? Yeah. I mean, we were, we were Pell Grant kids. You know, you got dropped off. And that was it. <laughs> you, you were going <laughs> go home every weekend. You had a job. I didn't, I didn't have a job the first year. I had money I saved because they kept telling us, you know, if you can, if you can, if you can make that first year work, if you can get really good grades that first year, you have a good foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't work the first year. I, I worked after that. And I went home at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. But I did. It was so weird. I did because I was so prepared for it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I remember. I have, remember having friends who were like homesick and everything. I didn't feel any of that. I was like, "This is cool." Yeah, <laughs> you know. So I didn't feel any of that part. And I, I'll be honest about that. Because of our preparation, <laughs> I took classes as a freshman I should have never taken. <laughs> so, like advanced courses, like upper level two hundred, three hundred. I was. In, I was in criminology two hundred one. I remember. Ooh. Because we were. I mean, we were. We were trained. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I could take that. Yeah. Read the description, signed up for it. It was funny too. A, a colleague, a, a friend of mine, uh, Quinn Sharkey, he was like, "What you doing in this class?" I was like, I won't take this class. He's like, yeah. "You're a freshman." I'm like, "I got you." And I challenged him. Yeah. Let's see, let's see Grace at midterm. It was kind of funny. But I had a really, really cool professor. And ironically, this this would be a good good story. Yeah. Last year, I got a package like a FedEx envelope oh. from Clover Stockton College. What is this? Open it up. It was a blue book from 1986. Ooh. One of my, my favorite professors, I guess, was, was retiring. It was leaving and found it and sent it to me. So we gave it to, gave it to alumni and they sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Number one, I can't believe I used to fill up a whole blue book, number one. That's impressive. Well, now, because I'm lazy now, back in, when you're young, you're probably going <laughs> What was neat about it was that he was a young professor. Mm-hmm. He was so passionate about his people kind of made fun of him and everything. But I thought he was cool because he was so smart. Hmm. And so I used to go to I used to go to office hours all the time. In fact, he wrote his dissertation about one of the top criminal criminology theorists. Mm-hmm. And who wrote our book. So I thought that was kind of neat. So Dr. Toder and I, and he only, he was only there for two years because he, he was filling in for somebody who was on sabbatical. They didn't keep him because he didn't get super good reviews because he was, he was hard. Mm. I liked him. And, yeah. I, and I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of, of Dr. Harry Toder easily in 30 years. Wow. But when I read through that blue book, for, I couldn't believe I wrote that neatly one time either. But, uh, I had really good professors and they really did take an interest. But I look back now, it's easy to get interested in a, de- in, in a dedicated kid, though. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. The kid that comes to office hours, the kids that, does, that, that challenges you but means it, you know, it's easy to do that. Absolutely. So that kind of, when I op- when I began my work in TRIO and in multicultural affairs, I always thought to myself, if I gave the same opportunities that I got, to that B and C student, that could be an A and B student. Oh, definitely. And definitely. so a lot of times, you know, especially leadership opportunities and those kind of things, they came so easily to the ones who are the, what I call now the usual suspects. 
Mm-hmm. That that really was a part of that. So transitioning was easy. It didn't get difficult in college until the last two years. Because mm-hmm. when my grandma passed, I took a semester off. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those tears that people thought wasn't going to come back. Yeah. No, I was, and you're a young guy, so this, this, you would not even understand this. So back in the day, <laughs> when you worked in a grocery store, I went back to the grocery store because they knew me. I was a produce boy. Okay, so now when you go buy produce, it's all fancy. And, you know, at night, they have the sprinklers that come on and everything. Oh, yeah. No, back in my day, I had to come back in at 9 o'clock uh-huh. and pack all of the vegetables and everything down in ice and cover it all with, with uh, trash bags and come back in at 5.30 and water all of that down. Oh, my. You best believe I went back to college and never left. <laughs> but and my grandma didn't you know she had put it in me that this is what you do. You don't you work your job, you do your job. Yeah. So literally I was a produce boy. I was doing thirty dollars a week. Mm-hmm. I was renting a room for my uncle and I had to pay that rent every month on time. There was no slide. Wow. And so when I went back to college, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get this right. <laughs> so yeah, it was I was I remember stopping out and my professors all worked with me and I took incompletes that semester because I was a mess. And but they worked with me. Yeah, they all made sure that I got the work done. Um, I got my scholarship back. But I think because I was from such a structured school, I didn't have any of the what I see in a lot of my students that kind of fear and everything of talk to professors and everything. I didn't have that because I, I was a trained in high school. Yeah, and so that's what I always would teach my students. You know, you, you go talk to them. These yeah. office hours, you do this. But that's what they taught us in high school. Mm-hmm. Good and bad, you know. We were we were a little flipping at times. I'm sure and some professors probably got tired of me. <laughs> you, you're not, I mean, you're not going to flood me because you didn't know who I was. <laughs> but uh, and and you kind of so that, that transition when the losing yeah. her. I'm finished. Oh no, no! I was just going to kind of build off of what you were saying, Trent, uh, uh, and having that that the old the old school mentality, right? Of you you go into a job, you do it until it's until it's done right. Um, I worked retail at Kmart long time ago uh, during high school, and I remember my mom, you know, ingraining so, something similar. It was like you stay mm-hmm. with the job even after they declared bump. It was my senior year, final semester, and they declared bankruptcy, and they said we're going to cut everybody's hours. And I remember I, I told that to my mom, like, hey, they're, they're declared bankruptcy. They're going to cut my hours. And my mom was like, well, like, OK, but you're going to be there until the job is done. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, OK. But yeah, it's, it's that very you're dedicated. You're dedicated to the job. Uh, another question I was going to ask you is uh, a, a quick follow up about um, work ethic and how you how you perceive that now with with students. Do you feel like students now have the same work ethic, similar work ethic, or do you feel like it's decreased? People always say it's decreased. I, I think only time I see a decrease in it is when it hasn't been modeled for them. Ah, okay. So we, do, we do some interesting things that, that I don't know, I think I learned from different perceptions. One thing we do is, we couldn't do it last year because of the pandemic, but normally, because I work with UNCF, one of the best days of my year always were interview days. Mm-hmm. And so I replicated that with my staff. So because we give our scholarships as well, we interview all our kids. Because I told the staff, they sh- I don't care if the, st- the student is getting a scholarship or, or getting put in, in or put in our um, 
success program, they should all feel like they were chosen. Mm-hmm. So like right now, we're probably up to, we start interviews in April, we've probably done 30 kids already. Wow. We'll interview all the way through to August 1. Yeah. But because for, I wanted my staff to have that feeling I was having every year of that excited kid. Mm-hmm. What we also do is the last Sunday of July, because our orientation is in that last Saturday, we have what we call research and review in, in St. Louis. And we invite the parents and the students and current students and alums together. Normally between, you know, 1,800 people. Wow. And I'm, I'm very careful. I don't, I learned this from listening to my students. I don't bring the usual suspects all the time. I'll bring one or two of those. Mm-hmm. I want to bring an alum who couldn't find a job for a minute, alum who lost a job for a bad attitude. And I want them to talk about that. Because students are telling me that I can't relate to that straight A kid all the time. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm old and my hair's gray, I can talk to the parents more. And I listen. And when I hear a kid say, my mama don't play or da da da. When I hear that they have a connection, that they've connected this educational pursuit with their family, mm-hmm. work ethic is there. Yeah. Now, as eager as I am to hire students, I will fire a student in a minute. Mm-hmm. And they know that. They know that you don't you don't want to be, you don't want the smoke. And so we kind of laugh about that. Right. So but we also from from retail and from working in, in um um, I did, I was a waiter, I was a bartender, I did all those public jobs. Mm-hmm. So I structure my work, I structure our student assistance like that, like a union. So many hours get you from, pro, from student assistant to program assistant to program associate. We pay with those, those pay ranges go up. We have, we do train the training with them. Mm-hmm. And so we really do build that into that. We have a, we have a, mentoring program built into our, our area. Mm-hmm. And we have the possibility with not just our, but we, we, it's for 45 students. We have 15 in our, in our area that we keep, keep our hands on. And they think it's fun, but actually our, our area is kind of like purgatory. You know, <laughs> if, if you're not good, we're going to put you over here to, to, to tune you up. Yeah. But that mentoring program, uh, reflects that work ethic and they learn. Charles is one of my favorite students. I fired Charles in uh, November. Oh, he was this dragon. Yeah. <laughs> so then he came back. It was so funny. He came back. Um, I have a special place in my heart for grad assistants because I was a grad assistant. Mm-hmm. So he came back in March to talk about me and G. I said, you lazy. We know you. We ain't hurting you. We all know you lazy. And I think I heard his feelings. Well, what I found out was, but I did help him interview for, set up for an interview for a job at the College Advising Corps. Mm-hmm. As a colleague of mine, the ED is a friend of mine. <laughs> and Jerron told me that Charles told them the story of critical feedback from what I told him. I was like, ooh. <laughs> it's funny. Jerron did, did not know that that's where it came from. But Jerron told me his story. We brought Charles in. It was me and the three directors. And I said, Charles, we're not going to hire you as a grad assistant. You're lazy. We gave you this chance. We gave you this chance. We gave you this chance. And we're still cool. Yeah, We, we pay for a summer, his final summer class. You have to... It, it's the trickery idea of challenge and support. The students know that with us. Yeah, I will be there with you 100%, but I'm also going to bang your head, too, if you're not getting this done. Right. So for the work act, I think sometimes they have to they have to see it, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. They thought, you know, Charles thought, I'm a trio kid. I'm cool. And I said, yeah, you got a baby. You got you got responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, you can't work here anymore. You need, to, you need to pick up those hours, more hours at Schnucks, and you're going to make this work. 
and, and you know they get mad at me all the time one of my I'm, I, one of my coolest alums actually you'll appreciate this so damian myers mm-hmm. was a mcnair kid he was an sss kid mcnair kid came to college as a freshman smart kid played around uh joined a fraternity was messing up i sent him home i took a scholarship you gotta go okay so, yeah you're not taking it you're not taking it seriously he hated me oh i don't care about that came back a year later i brought him right back, right back in sss mm-hmm. right back into mcnair he graduated he went to howard uh we stayed connected he came back he got a job working uh in arkansas he came to see me mm-hmm. he was like they had he he become the founding science teacher for a kip high school oh wow they built him a lab mm-hmm. he said i never thought i wanted to be a high school teacher and so he recounted a story of me talking to him very reckless one day and i, I didn't remember it, but i'm sure i did <laughs> and he said, i was mad at you i was like we're not friends this is yeah. business right he said right. you told me if you're not serious about this get off the dole let us have this money mm-hmm. i was like i don't i'm sure i said it but we laughed <laughs> about that well now his daughter is a freshman in our program oh wow so i was like wow and i found a picture of him as a freshman and gave it to his daughter oh he, he, he didn't appreciate that <laughs> but now because he's a principal he brought three kids up to visit last week that's amazing so daughter i'm not going to put you in my cohort i'll keep like maybe 10 to 12 students i keep enough students to keep me grounded yeah so i don't get away from what their concerns are but I tell Yasmin, I'm not putting you in my group because you talk to your dad too much. So I'm putting you in my group. <laughs> I tell the students when we have our research and review, the whole staff is there. And I tell them right there, mm-hmm. you may not connect to the person that you're assigned to. You have every right to ask for a reassignment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it just, I don't want to hear it because you don't like somebody. I, that's not that's not enough for me. Yeah. But you, if there's a real, if there's a personality, a real personality clash, if there's a struggle, we can talk about that. Absolutely. Like this year, we're, we're doing a very concerted effort in our recruitment of minority male students. Yeah. And it's, you know, I haven't, this is the first time in years, Juan, I've actually visited high schools. Yeah. Wow. But representation is important. It really is. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I, I want to get back. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Trent. I'm done. I was just going to take us back to, um, your first year college experience and if you felt overwhelmed or did you feel like the course load and the activities that you were participating in it, was that something that felt overwhelming or did you look forward to that you know what i thought about now mm. i had to look at my high school my high school should have been called a trio school hmm. because 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 we were our your activities were, were like a summer upper bound program mm-hmm I was used to it. The, the class schedule, the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the Tuesday, Thursday, I was used to that. Mm-hmm. The tutor, uh, having uh, study hours, I was used to that. Mm-hmm. So my first year, I was like, oh, okay. This, this, this is like high school. You know, maybe a little more work to do. But we also, what I do remember so clearly is, and I don't know why they did this, but we went, I remember going through the process in high school of learning what kind of learner I was. Oh, Interesting. So, so like the college, I knew. I knew that I had to recopy my notes. I had to support them with stuff from the book. Mm-hmm. So when I, no matter what the class was, everything I studied was like reading a story. Mm-hmm. And I was structured that first year, maybe the first two years, 
I did my homework from 3.30 to 5.30. Wow. Now, background, I also had a little fear in me. <laughs> my grandmother said, <laughs> if you go there and you do not do well, you will come back here and work at the King, at the uh, gas station on Del Mar and Kings Highway. Mm. She would always tell me that. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm doing well. She's like, I don't know about that. You, that, you know, somebody's money, somebody spend the money to put you in college. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you will be pumping gas for people and selling um, Twizzlers. I, I don't know why that stayed in my mind when I was a kid. But she yeah. was serious about that. You know, okay. how are your grades? They're doing well. How was well, man, you know? So I had that. Mm-hmm. And I, I was still, I was young. I said, fear me. I was still, I was still in college showing her my midterm grades. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and funny enough, that was kind of the next question is about the guidance that you received in your first year of college. So it sounds like grandma really had a hand in your uh, your overall experience. She was no joke. <laughs> and my high school uh, counselor, we did the same thing. You all they, they tricked us too. Uh-huh. They would have reunions timed and we would be out of school. So when I was in high school, some of the uh, seniors for the last couple of years would come to like a senior day. Mm-hmm. We would see them and they were college students. So, you know, it was once again reinforcing that. And you were excited when it was your turn to come back and be one of the college students. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. They would bring us back. You know, they bring us back in the fall a couple of times and in the spring a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You, want, you wanted to brag about the fact that you were in school with your school colors on and you had good grades. Mm-hmm. That, that's back in the day too when everybody wasn't so scared to put stuff on the board like you know they put your name up there where they rank you and all that kind of stuff now you can get in trouble for that back in the day you could do that right I was so mad because I was I only had one out of my last four semesters of high school I was only the top student one of those semesters mm-hmm. I could not beat Marsha Fisher to save my life that's okay though we're still friends now oh that's good <laughs> that's very good good to hear uh any other guidance uh, aside from uh grandma uh, and some of the, your high school teachers uh or even college uh teachers uh did you have any mentors or advisors during college yes i did so the the dr king who i have for business law mm-hmm. he, he stayed with me and we had some time I, you know I, I was i mean don't get me wrong i was not I hold the record probably still. <laughs> of course, Dr. Gosh would change my class in the semester. You know, I could be, I, and he would always challenge me on that. He mm-hmm. was like, you can do this and then do that. Mm-hmm. He's the person who said that, you know, if, if you can't decide what you want to be, then be all of it. Mm-hmm. So he was the reason why I think I graduated with undergrad, like 120 hours or something. Cause wow. you know, like yeah. he said, if somebody's paying for it, you take it. Yeah. But I took 15 hours almost every semester cause somebody's paying for it. Mm-hmm. And so he would always talk about, but he would also encourage me to have experiences. So my degrees are in counseling and criminal justice, but my sophomore and my junior summers, I worked at a state psychiatric hospital mm-hmm. to have that internship experience. And actually that made me not want to go that direction. Oh, really? So that was gonna, actually going to be my next question to you oh, yeah. about the psychology and criminal justice program, because that was something you landed on. And yeah, about the career. Talk to us about that. Uh, my mom worked at the state hospital. She was an LPN. And so she got me the job. Actually, let me go back. At Metro High School, we had to do volunteer hours. And so I would do one week of volunteer work every summer with her. Mm-hmm. Now, then it was nothing but, you know, sitting with her. 
in her office while she put together medication packets. It wasn't real work. When I got the job, it was on the other side of the hospital where there were real patients and everything. And so I, I took, it was paying positions. And I took, I did the summer of my sophomore and junior year. And I was working with people who had graduated with their master's degrees who were working with me who were like, oh my God, this is horrible. So it helped me know what I didn't want to do. Yeah. Just kind of cool. And then the second part of my sophomore, my junior summer, I interned with um, some of my father's friends who were cops. I don't want to do that stuff either. So it was kind of neat. I actually learned the part that I didn't want to do. Hmm. And But those were also because we had begun that kind of work in high school. Mm-hmm. We had been talking about that. You know, I, when I got to college, I wanted an internship as soon as possible. Because I knew I wanted to see and then I did a Quantico thing. These guys came and talked to us, and we were talking about being um, FBI agents and everything. That's when I found out that I did not care for the smell of blood. Mm. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of, you know, it was, it was so cool to to decide I like this field, but not get to a graduation and say, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. my students, I do a lot of that. We, we, did, we create a whole program called Connect Cape, where students, we pay for one hour of, job shadowing, which is 40 hours over spring break. And we, and we paid them for that time as well. Mm-hmm. And they work, they work, they work, not just kind of walk around looking at everybody, but they actually work as an employer for that week in that position over spring break. Yeah. And to make it worth something, they get one hour of curricular credit for it. Oh, that's good. And we pay awesome. them, I think, I think whatever the going rate is, whatever weight, a little above minimum wage. I think now it's like 10, 25 an hour, 40 hours that week. Take away the excuse. I got to work. We got you. Yeah. I got classes. No, you don't. Here's a credit hour. Yeah. So it actually is built into the trio grant. We we have we have control over a one hour class. They thought it was going to be remediation always, but it's not. It's whatever the kid needs it to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the the, the registrar tries to tag me about that every time. <laughs> um, Trent, can you talk to us about your college experience? What did you enjoy most about it? And were there any challenges along the way? Uh, what I enjoyed most about college probably was I was an active college student. Mm. I was in organizations. I was mm, that's probably the coolest part about it. I was a pretty active kid. I enjoyed it. I um, small private school. There was we were pretty tight because there were less than two hundred black and brown kids at the time. Mm. We were good friends. And I was, in a sense, I was a usual suspect, but I was a little bit savvier. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even say this, but <laughs> so for example, admissions wanted a black face in their brochures. Mm-hmm. And every time I wore that Culver Stockton College sweatshirt, they had to pay me. Mm. I'm not taking this picture for free. What's, what's this about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know where I got that from, but uh, and so with my students now, I said, don't do it. If, if they're calling you the student expert, they should be paying you for it. Mm-hmm. Don't do any, don't, don't take a t-shirt and be happy with that. Yeah. So my kids start, sometimes they make me mad because they know that's how I think. So we'll do a, we'll do an event <laughs> and they'll be like, where the gift card at? Cause I, I always, in our trio grant, I wrote in that the bookstore would give me $3,000 worth of, uh, gift cards. Hmm. And so students know if I ask you to be on a panel, there's a gift card of 25 bucks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We shouldn't, we should make them value that education. 
Absolutely. I don't know where I got that from, though, but I, I remember the joke. I have a brochure from 1986 when me sitting there smiling with this blue and white sweatshirt. <laughs> I know I got like 20 bucks on board. Yeah. I, sometimes I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to that recruiting event with you for free. Well, I don't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a Metro thing, but I remember that. And also, I think it was kind of keeping my 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 black and brown friends active. Mm. I ended up moving from our freshman dorm to the honors dorm. Mm. And it was, I was so surprised at how different we were treated there. It was so we had a house mother and I, now, you know, I was only black kid in there. So that was, that was a whole nother set, set of situations. Mm-hmm. But, um, I remember encouraging my friends to come over and, and how uncomfortable they were at times. Mm. And so I remember working on some of that too. Yeah. But yeah, because I was a usual suspect, you know, I got all kind of stuff offered to me. So college didn't get tough. My mom, my grandma passed. That was a rough year. Mm. But after that, it was pretty much, it was cool. Yeah. I left. I came back. That put me a semester behind. But it didn't slow anything down, really. When I think about it. I was a waiter that summer. Waited tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dr. Blotz, my college, my uh, psych professor, he was so instrumental in keeping me connected. Like when I knew I was going to not come back to take a semester off, I said, <laughs> what are going to be the big issues in counseling as we go forward? He said, HIV. And so I was a 21-year-old kid who went through training to work with HIV-positive clients. And I did my paper on that. <laughs> and I did that. I did serial killers. Wow. Criminal justice. So yeah. I did HIV clients for the psych side, and I did serial killers for the criminal justice side. But I was, like I said, I was always a kid. And I, I think now, if I had to think about most of my time on campus, was sitting in somebody's office asking questions. Yeah. Or bugging them. Right. And I was a staff assistant, so I worked in the registrar's office. So when we, our con- it's kind of like being a GA for undergrad. It paid for everything that I worked in the registrar's office 20 hours a week. Mm hmm. So that was kind of my job, and I did some stuff in campus activities. And so since I was in there, and it was interesting because I'm I'm sure that I brought more of my friends to those circles because of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was that's what I was doing. That's and then I there was I helped them start a, one of the Greek organizations on campus, but I didn't stay with that. I'm an only child. I'm I'm not a big affiliate, which is weird. <laughs> I'm still not like that at this age. I, I might do it for a little while, but I don't stay with too much. I think that's the Batman in me. He's still a part-time member of the Justice League. He's never been a full-time member. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. I mean, uh, I some similarities between you and Batman is uh, you like to form something as a contingency, as, as something that'll ke- help keep things going, but uh, you don't want to be part of it. That's true. Well, I'll, I'll say something shocking. Okay. I found out, I found this out five or six years ago. I have no proof of this, so this is over with me. There's a there's a great uh, there's a Batman novel called The Untold History of the Batman. Mm, mm-hmm. I read it when I was a kid. I remember it clearly, not super clearly. I found it again about ten years ago, five ten years ago, and actually Batman spent a semester studying at Southeast Missouri State University. Really? Because at the time period, it was one of the few schools in the country that had a crime lab. Oh, I don't, I don't know how connected that actually is. Yeah, but to see that in that book, it's in my office now. Yeah, 
makes me kind of go, wait a minute. And, and his majors were criminal justice and psychology. Well, administration okay. justice then and psychology. Very, very interesting. Now, I tell people I was going to be Batman until I was about 13. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I didn't have any money to buy all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I took, I, took, I took karate. I took gymnastics. I read yeah. graciously. I was going to be Batman. And I think that every once in a while we talk about that. Uh, when I did group therapy but as a therapist because I didn't have a problem seeing the bottom of the mask as being brown. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder how much of that. There's this famous picture from when I was a kid in Ebony Magazine with a little black kid with the towel around his neck looking in the mirror at a white superhero. Mm. I never had a problem thinking that Batman could be black. Oh, that's awesome. Now, also, I can say I have all that. I have all that money at thirteen, though. So, I mean, oh God! Well, I remember, I remember uh, smoke bonds in my basement and all kind of crazy stuff like that too. <laughs> chemistry. I had a chemistry lab. I made some smoke bombs, and mm. oh, my grandmother. <laughs> I forgot about that. And I was, I was on the series. I was serious about twelve or thirteen. I was going to do this. Yes, you were. You were already committed, like Batman, committed to the I mission. Was committed, which is funny. <laughs> I wonder what I'm, I had, I'm, gonna have, I'm gonna have to ask my aunt about that. I'm taking her to dinner tomorrow. What happened if that smoke bomb thing? I knew I, I, I did set off smoke, some smoke bombs in our basement. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, let me know. Let me know if you discover or what you discover from that. Oh, she'll tell me tomorrow. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> my, my aunt Brenda, she always reminds me of that, but you know, she, they all, my whole family indulged it though. Yeah. Oh my God! You you don't know how much you can't name anything one that's Batman that I haven't had or don't have. Right, I'm sure. I mean, being a a fan of a superhero and and getting to know their origin story almost inside and out, and knowing the equipment that they that they usually carry, uh, I'm sure you you've come across a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff that you wanted to replicate. Oh yeah, yeah. if you saw if people if you saw my car right now. My uh, will covering of my steering wheel is, of course, Batman. Hmm. I have the, I have the. People always comment on the table, which is interesting. <laughs> I don't, I don't think about his, how popular he is. You know, he belongs to me. I don't care about everybody. So, yeah, it's weird how that works. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in, when I was a silly uh, board chair, actually, they got. I, I'm, a, I was, I'm wearing it Monday. They had a T-shirt made for me, mm. and, I, I, and it's, I. I we never get into that conversation, but they had a t-shirt, white t-shirt made, and it is the bat signal, but inside of it's the word trio. Oh, nice. That's awesome. And then, and, and my uh, president-elect had a, um, her, I guess she, she had a colleague that made these, so she had a stained window pane made with trio in it, and then Batman in the background. So everybody knows that. Now, now every once in a while, it's, it's, it's using some silly stuff, you know, look. I'm a 50 some year old man. I don't want to bat me as <laughs> I, I take all gifts graciously because I'm the only child. But you know, there's a connected part of that. My 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 suitcase has the Batman emblem on the side of it. Yeah. So all my blankets, I have blankets in all of my house. Everybody's bought me every possible Batman just to throw that ever existed. Yeah. But I, I take them graciously because it's Batman. Right now, the the on the front of my surface is the Batman. If you saw my any of uh, my phone or my surface or my computer at work, you can believe it's Justice League. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Trent, I'm gonna uh, we're gonna jump a little bit ahead, but 
Let's talk a little bit about your graduation, uh, your graduation ceremony from college. Uh, What was that moment like for you? Well, it was super special because they did something that really got me and I still have it. So um, (laughs) I got the um, psychology award that year for a paper I wrote about. um, I wrote a paper about are there personality factors that predispose women to domestic violence. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so every year they pick somebody in each uh, department that gets the thousand dollar award. Mm-hmm. When I got the award, people said I rubbed my hands together because I was broke. <laughs> so <laughs> I pro- I'm sure I probably did that. The other part of it was, it was so beautiful. The Dean got a, co- this picture I have my grandmother. I still have it right now. It's a one of her favorite pictures of herself. When they handed me my uh, degree, I opened it up and the picture was in it. Oh. I almost broke down. And yeah. I hate that because I'm pretty controlled. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was that was that was a very special thing for me. That's amazing. Are there any mentors, advisors that are advocates you wish to recognize right now on the podcast? Everybody. But you know, Dr. Blos, Dr. Toder, and Angela Merritt. Because she was the only black professional that we had on our campus who worked with in the staff side. And she was <laughs> funny. I thought about this. She sent me a car a couple of months ago with Adam West on the front of it. But uh, <laughs> Angela was the person I went to when I was, was fighting some racial stuff that happened. Oh. And she would, she, she would always say the same thing Betty said. We are kings. We are kings and queens. Mm-hmm. And so they really, you know, Dr. Blos actually worked at the at the mental institution, the famous one, where they talked about all of the um, lobotomies that they were doing to mentally um, ill patients up in Massachusetts. That was cool. And Dr. Toto was a young guy. So they were really in high school. They were really powerful. Jumping to graduate school, I had a phenomenal professor who who banged my head on a regular basis, who actually sat me down and told me. Uh, and Mars, she sat and told me, you're not special. <laughs> and I, and she taught me, I was, I had the halo effect for the first year of graduate school that she crushed my head on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I turned in my thesis the first time, she told me that it was so bad she drove her car over. And she was right. I was, I was half-assed doing it. Mm-hmm. She was like, no, not for me. You're going to do this work. And I am Mars, she, she, she stayed with me. I needed that. I, I needed that. If I can find out how to make work, I'll make it work. And she was like, nope, I'm not impressed. Yeah. Wow. Carpet loves you. I don't love you. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Wow. And I pivoted with that quickly. My last semester of graduate school, I was offered the opportunity to work in the trio program. Hmm. Uh-huh. What happened was, you right. I quit my J position. That's a, that's the story for another day. When I went to the dean of the graduate school. I said, look, I can't do this no more. They're wearing me out. She hmm. said, you got a full point. Are you going to keep it? I'm like, yes. Then she turned around and offered me the opportunity to go overseas with the cohort and spend six weeks in London working with people over there who were mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. So when I guess when I left, the jobs were open in Trio. There were two positions open in Trio, but I was gone for the first one. So they didn't contact me. When I got back at the end of July, they contacted me and said, we have a halftime learning specialist position open in Trio. I'm like, I want to work with them. <laughs> <laughs> not the students, the staff, because I had been in, in academic assistance as a GA for two years. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a row between those directors. It wasn't always pleasant between the two. 
Yeah. I was on the side of my director, of course, because, you know, I'm Batman. I got to be loyal. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me a chance to do it. So I took the job and I started working for Trio August 11th, 1994. Wow. And I said, I was so excited, though, because I was a professional now making $400 every two weeks as a GA. Yeah. I wasn't making much more than that, but I was a halftime professional. And I said, I'll do this in two years. And that was obviously 26 years ago. But the great thing about it was I had a director, uh, Dr. Kalik, and I had an EOP director, Harry Schuler, who exposed me to everything that they could. It's my first conference that November and did the presentation. It was so long ago that we did our presentation on transparency. You probably know what the transparency is, the, that, that thing. With the, you probably don't. That's cool. You know, you, you have to, you, you put together a sheet and you lay it on the thing and it projects onto the wall. Mm-hmm. You have never seen that. No, no, you don't have to hear them. <laughs> was our first presentation, and actually, our presentation was on, was on, was on recruiting recruiting students to the program. Mm. And so I did. Um, I, I was halftime for a year, and then they uh, I interviewed for the job, and I became full time for a year. Then I left right and leave trip. We were all in the same umbrella, but they started the Minority Student Programs Office. Mm-hmm. So I became that coordinator. That came became the director of that program. And then I, um, I asked to work with the trail programs. Mm-hmm. So they came under the umbrella with us. So that's, that's a, that's a quick jump. Yeah. But the cool thing about it was when I was in trio, I had never been in a situation before where professionals were so willing to help and work with you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, Dr. Khalid, Oh my God, she she was writing the first grant like in a year later. We were all part of that process. And she was like, I need you to write this. I'm like, write what? I don't know. I was scared to death. But me and my friend Catherine, now Catherine had worked in another department and we both started about a few months apart. We became, you know, a trio of back-to-back buddies. Yeah. And so we went and we worked together for a couple of years together working in the program. And it was neat because I always say that if you work in a trio program, you really work in your own little student affairs. Really, yeah. You touch everything. So she had come from the registrar's office. I had come from academic assistance. It gave us a chance to work in other departments. Mm-hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to write the first McNair program, I did. Now, I would only write if it stayed in my area. Mm-hmm. That was my rule. And so years ago, I, I told everybody, no matter where I moved to the university, Trill comes with me. Mm-hmm. So I moved in three different divisions, and I kept with me the entire time. Wow. It's, it's a different situation. We had, now don't get me wrong, we had a very rough situation in 96 where a lot of bad stuff happened and we got in trouble as a collective whole and the two directors got um, uh, a month suspension. Hmm. The EOP director got fired uh-huh. and left me and Catherine to run the program. And wow. It was, but it was trial by fire. Yeah. At the end, actually, the EOP director ended up suing the university. And all that got wiped out. So all the stuff that happened bad was was investigated not to be bad. We were not properly supported at a certain level. But even then, the trio program still stayed together. And so he yeah. had, that's why I had a chance to work with Upper Bound and supervise that and talent search. So one thing I haven't worked with is directly is ELC. Hmm. Okay. So my- wish me the right one, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my question to you next now is what type of impact are you hoping to make in higher education? What sort of influence or leaving your mark uh, are you hoping to make? 
um, recently I told somebody that I remember I mentioned I got some Denzel Washington actually, so let me give him credit. I'm entering my fourth fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. I'm transitioning from participant to coach. I think that for the last five years, maybe ten years, my really goal has been who do we have doing the work? Mm-hmm. So right now, probably there are about five to ten people that I kind of coach and work with right now mm-hmm. in trio programs or similar diversity DEI programs to do the work and how they do the work. Because I believe that what's happening is, you know, trio has to sustain itself when this big love of DEI passes. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling my colleagues, it depends on where you are, where you align yourself. Some institutions right now, being with DEI is a good thing for the trio programs. Mm-hmm. But it depends on your institution. And I remind people that all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to be careful that you're not used as a success story, that everything's going wonderful. Oh, yeah. So my grandmother used to always say, nobody breaks into an empty house. People love to take trio programs put under them because they work. Mm-hmm. You know, no one, people, people still trio moving around all the time. So yeah. some, of my, some of my colleagues, I tell them, you know, if you have to move, negotiate. Um, I moved into doing a lot of consulting. I just did a couple of institutions in April. Mm-hmm. And I'm always transparent with the trio programs and having a conversation. I told my colleague, I'm like, hey, you know, there's a chance for you right here mm-hmm. to move up and, and, and be able to do that. Yeah, I've told some people, don't do that. I was another institution where I said, they want to move you, don't, don't move. Mm-hmm. So right now, my, I think my impact is I want to make sure I'm helping train the people who are serving our students. Right on. And, okay. you know, my my current job is only a year old. Yeah. And it really, it was a good conversation because I wanted to make sure that if it was going to be equity, it was going to be access in it. Absolutely. You, absolutely. You've worked with the first generation population for a while. I think college and universities as recently as 25 years ago have started to embrace first generation students with trio backgrounds. Uh, do you find this to be true or do you think that the first gen movement is, is now taking steam? Oh yeah. People love first gen. They just, they're afraid of low income. Ah. They love first gen. So they love first generation. What do you mean by they, they don't, they, they're afraid of low income. Only people is, only people that aren't having their low income are afraid to say it. Mm. I'll be in rooms and have conversations. They'll be, oh, we don't want to say poor. Nobody who is poor does not know that they are poor. Yeah. This isn't new. I think the issue has been, because if you notice now, people are replacing the word low income with hell eligible. Oh, yeah. That, that is becoming a more dominant terminology. They dodge the word. When I work, I work with Peacock America, and I, I don't know what can't even think what event it was. But Tom Sugar asked me a question about it. And I said, my students have high need and high ability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He kept quoting me. I thought they must have liked that. You know, I understand that I don't want to label a student. But when I say low income, I'm talking about the system. I'm talking about the kid. We have to remember that in higher education, the system is designed as a funnel to make everybody into a white male. Mm. And so we are hired in TRIO and DEI to be disruptors. And we have to remember that. Yeah. Interesting. And be okay with that. Yeah. If you're not okay with that, then you can't do this work. Right. First gen sounds so cool because people talk about first gen after they've gotten away from it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I was first gen. You could say so probably. But, you know, the, I don't know if they just said the same thing. We had our first gen celebration last year and our provost and our head of our department, A&P, both spoke. Mm-hmm. And they told great stories. And I told the provost, I appreciate his story because people don't assume that the struggle is the same. Mm-hmm. He was an athlete and that got him into college. Then he realized what he needed to do. But he was very proud to talk about that experience. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want the I want the unusual suspects to talk about this. Yeah. Our current president, when he opened up his um, remarks when he first became president, he discussed being a first generation low income college student. I think it's becoming more common. I think people are embracing it. I'll tell you something else too. A lot of institutions are embracing it because right now, our current economic times, that federal Pell Grant is real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, scholarships to discounts. Pell Grants are, ca- are cash. Absolutely. I'm watching a lot of institutions right now um, keep their eyes open for that that next set of cares money. Absolutely. Yeah. If it goes sure. through and think about it. if it goes through tomorrow, a lot of our students will receive an additional fourteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. That can be a lot of money. That's very true. Our institution right now, our freshman class of nineteen, of course, right now, the last trio grant, our freshman class of eighteen and nineteen is sixty percent first year low income minority. Uh Nathan Gawk, who wrote the book The Demand for Demographics in Higher Education, his new book is called The Agile College. Nathan was the person who sounded the alarm about the change in demographics and the decline in enrollment. Here's where the mistakes are. He did not say that there was going to be decline in enrollment for everybody. Mm-hmm. What he said was there's going to be decline in enrollment for first-time, full-time, full-paid, partial-paid white kids. Mm-hmm. In 20, the children born in 2010, who were five years old in 2015, were part of the first group of uh, kindergartners that entered kindergarten as the majority. Hmm. So what it tells us all right now is the freshman class of 2028 will be majority minority. Wow. What are we doing to prepare for that? The graduating class of 2021 was the first time it was 40 high school. It was 49.4% white. It's already here. Wow. And so as, as colleges and universities, do not embrace the changing demographics. Students are making another decision. I don't know if you're a sports guy, but people are noticing right now that quite a few of the top black athletes mm-hmm. have made decisions to go to HBCUs versus top schools. Wow. So they've already I made find a decision. Parents asking me now. Yeah. They don't say, I, oh, yeah. I find parents asking me more now, not about affordability, but about culture and about safety of their students. TRIO has always been an SES program, mm-hmm. and people have always mistaken it as a racially-based program. Mm. But since I've been all over the country, I've been places where that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. When I was at one of the conferences down in the South, there were no people of color in the program. But I think people get caught on that part. Yeah. And they assume that part. It's kind of like multicultural presence in DEI. I've always said that quite often some of the offices reflect the hue of who's running those offices. You must be very intentional who you hire once again to do the work. Absolutely. I think that's super important. One thing we kind of shy away from sometimes is in the trio world, I always hire students, faculty, and staff to work with our programs with the background of our students. But you have to be careful that they've actually overcome those background obstacles as well. If not, 
I, I had a staff member before who I did not understand what the challenge was. It just it wasn't working in the meeting and we were going back and forth. He just blurted it out. Well, I didn't have this when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, you don't like my kids. I didn't realize. I mean, he, he was from the background, but he was still struggling with it. Mm-hmm. So I had to add that to my to my checklist. Yeah. Think about it. Wow. And uh, typically a lot of people ask about TRIO programs. Is there more we can do for these first-generation students? And typically the answer is yes, we need more resources. But generally speaking, are colleges doing, are colleges doing enough to provide resources for first-generation college students? Quite often, colleges run into what I call the tyranny of all. Hmm. Once you have a successful program for a minority group, the first thing they say is scale it for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's up for everybody. Yeah. Everybody's not started at the same point. I've often resisted that. Not always to a good avail, but I believe that we have to be very careful that we don't scale without proper resources. Because you've done now is you've thinned out what you get for a target population. Uh-huh. I think institutions, especially because I can, I can watch the, um, the writing and everything. I think right now, so many universities and colleges are in love with Trio because, because only real money right now is federal money. Mm-hmm. States are cutting back regularly. Oh, yeah. I like to say my state institutions, my state supported is just state enhanced. And as such, you want federal dollars. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe me, take a look at Title Three grants coming out. Everybody in God is right at Title Three grant. They want the money. Here's the sad part about it, though. If you don't have the right people running the programs, you won't get the, what you need for the students. Mm. But I also tell my trio, my, my trio people, if you can, move up and take the programs with you to protect them. Yeah. Because it puts a trio voice at that table. Absolutely. I think that's so critical. I tell my young professionals, you know, when you we, what we need right now really is we need more people using the trio programs in their doctoral research yeah, to spread the body of work mm-hmm. in their master's work. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, in other areas, you know, if we're going to be at conferences that are not trio, we should take a trio with us. Mm-hmm. People laugh at me because I, I have my same profile picture because in that picture, there is my COE with helping. Yeah. And no matter what else I do, that was the pinnacle of my professional career. Yeah. I think that universities will try to do more, but we got to push them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Out of their comfort zone. Absolutely. And there's certainly a personal and academic barriers that continue to follow first-gen students or trio students. I think mentoring and academic coaching could be a very good answer to some of the transition difficulties that students face. Uh, but in your experience, does academic coaching make an impact on a student's college experience? Do you feel like we need more academic coaching? Do you, do you feel like um, we need uh, ad- additional uh, transition success uh, specialist? W- what do you feel there would be the college's role? We need, we need a change in policies. We need change in policies. We need to stop assuming that we have to force our right into that same funnel. Right. We make exceptions. We make allowances. We don't make policies. I serve on the appeals committee. Why in 2021 is a student having to work not considered a mitigating circumstance and retain their financial aid? Mm. Yeah. That's a policy issue. Yeah. All the students have to work. But, but the federal government doesn't recognize that as a mitigating circumstance. Mm-hmm. 
why do we all have to create emergency funds when we know that the cost of attendance is not a real number? Yeah. Why does a student have to jump through 99 hoops to get an emergency loan? Wow. People know my policy is I am not going to let a kid lose a semester for $200. Mm-hmm. That's just silly. We should have access to funding to support their life along with their academic pursuit. Absolutely. Number two, we need more internships, the more realistic appraisals of an academic pursuit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't let my staff serve as primary advisors for Montreal students because that's who we all we blame all the time as the advisor. So my people, they say, well, I, nope, we're going to be accelerating advisors. Because I think that so often in higher ed right now, we are piling so much on that entry-level person. Mm-hmm. They have to be coach. They have to be counselor. They have to be advisor. Yeah. It's not a work for $35,000 a year. And no time to train because you, you're seeing back-to-back students. Very so I, I do think they need some more assistance. And I'm, this is going to sound kind of bad. I'm very reticent on peer programs. I'll tell you why. I believe in them for presentations and for modeling activities. I don't believe in them a lot for serving students because what happens is we now take that junior or senior and have them folks in a freshman and sophomore and they lose their support. Right. So I'm always, I'm always a little reticent with that. When I do peer structure programs, I always have it because if there's three or four peer mentors, then they report to a staff member that's mentoring them to keep that because we don't we don't do that because we're all short staff. Yeah. So I think I think coaching works. I think they all work, but they all work in moderation. They are not the full answer. Right. Attack the policies. You need more academic coaching because our academic structures are not reflective. Um, a big vein right now is why the hell are students taking, uh, why would any student, any especially trail student, have to do an unpaid internship? They can't afford that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen students change their major at the end because they can't afford to work a semester. They can't do it. They can't have a semester of 40 hours a week where they're not work making money. Right. But the, but the academia doesn't accept that. So we look at our policies. And what our policies were, des- were designed for, they were not designed for the working student or the low-income student. Oh, yeah. So you served TRIO so far, you served in a TRIO association, and you also worked for the Council for Opportunity and Education, or you served in the board. Um, you have some insight as to the inner workings of educational advocacy. Can you talk to us about that experience? Yes. We're going to have to help our students stand with us. I think we do quite a bit of it as advocates. And there's a great organization I work with right now. I've worked with before, run by, developed and run by a former TRIO student. For, it's called League of Student Advocates. And what they say is, not for us without us. Mm-hmm. We've got to train our students and bring our students into the work with us. Not just taken to the Hill or not just taken to the Capitol, but on our campuses as well. Mm-hmm. And train them as advocates. Um, during the last few years of upheaval, I say all the time, when students protesting, a student is saying, teach me how to lead. Mm. I'm proud to say that we have two African-American men in the Missouri, one in the Missouri Senate, one in the Missouri House that came out of our programs. That's amazing. But they were two people that one in 16 and one in 12, they were protesting. Mm-hmm. And what I heard was, teach me how to lead. I think the advocacy work is being spread among other organizations as well. They learn well from the TRIO programs. 
you have to work with them as well. And remind, I mean, I love the fact that everybody loves first generation, but that was a term coined by COE. Mm-hmm. And putting legislation by we have to own and embrace that. Yes. And not be afraid to say that's ours. That's you know, awesome. I'm a little bit, I'm a little radical though, so I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not throwing a brick here though. So as we near the end of the podcast, Trent, are there any colleagues or friends that you would like to recognize on the podcast that have made an impact on your career or that have really just uh, been sounding boards to you or they've given you great career advice? That would take like the next three hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I would do, I would do the, the, the first five that pops to my head when you said the question. Okay. Dr. Mitchum has been outstanding. I left the board five years ago. He still emails me and encourages me. K. Muff Morgan, Dr. K. Muff Morgan now at Wichita State. We've been friends for 20 years. And we've, we've helped each other, cajoled each other, pushed each other, pulled each other, backed each other up. Dr. Sidney Child at Saginaw State. He's been outstanding. We met at my first trail conference way back in 1994. Wow. Dr. Celestine Johnson, who taught me that you spread your wings. So she was president of COE. She's president of ACPA. She worked with NASPA. She's the one who told me, take the trio work across the educational spectrum. Wow. Oh, wow. A good friend of mine, right? My current trio director, about to say like, this young man came in as a J 15 years ago and built a beast on our, on our campus, the trio programs. Those are the first names. Oh, I can't forget my pal, Roxanne. Roxanne Gregg has director of the programs at IUPUI. She's always the person who reminds me about the importance of the pre-college component. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we kind of skip past that one. And Roxy reminds me of that. So I will, I will stop there because then people will be mad that I didn't remember. <laughs> right on, Trent. Um, what advice would you give to first-generation TRIO students on the podcast, li- if they're listening? Advocate for yourself. Talk to your professors. Make sure your voice is heard. Become a part of the system so you can change the system. I always say you have to learn the rules to break the rules. Absolutely. That's great advice. Ironically, I was doing, I was meeting with a colleague of mine today who was a brand new director, McNair. Uh And I was giving him a trio works button, lapel pin. I'm a big lapel pin guy. Uh And it was so funny because he said, where did this start? And I was like, you know what? There's many ways to say TRIO works. The best example of it is looking at our students and our graduates. Mm-hmm. I love to see the TRIO stole at graduation. I don't care what program it is. Yep. When I see that, 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 that stands out. Absolutely. But I also want to make sure we look at this as well. The staff is just as important. Absolutely. Who is serving my students is just as important as who is in the program. I can't, I can't say that enough. We've got to make sure that people get training, they get support, they get development, they get training and professional development because you are examples consistently of that. Absolutely. And and not to steal your thunder, Trent, but this is a great segue to the next question. What words of wisdom do you have for TRIO staff all over the nation? I'm a fan of Lucille Balls. No relation. I wish she was. (laughs) In one of her earlier books that I read, she said three things I think are very important. Uh Uh-huh. Number one, learn something new about your job every day. Number two, do whatever they ask you to do within reason. Number three, take care of your people. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I use that all the time consistently. You know, we don't always pay a whole lot. I always say that. But sometimes where, they, where, where there's not dollars, there's cents. Absolutely. So our administrators involve your staff. Get their feedback consistently. And do not have one committee, do not have one activity, do not plan one event without a student on the team. That, that is, is my that is great advice. Trent, it has been a great pleasure to have you on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. I hope we can do this again soon. Whenever you want to, especially because I'll be, you know, I'm coming to I'm in my fourth quarter now, so I got more free time. Right on, right on. We'll, de- <laughs> we'll definitely do this again because I want to really dive into, you know, the master's experience with you and you can talk about, you know, we can even do a deep dive on Batman and your analysis, but uh, for sure, we need to, we need to follow up again. Don't do it to yourself. You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> All right, Juan. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Trent, thank you so much. Can you please do us the honor in signing off? Definitely. We all love the expression Trio Works. I think that we should have that everywhere. I think everybody should have their pen. I want to have a national day where we all are on our social media platforms wearing our Trio Works lapel pen. Because after 25 years in higher ed, nothing works like Trio. I absolutely agree. Trent, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, sir. You have a great one. You as well. Peace. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a TRIO program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk TRIO. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk TRIO. We want to get your story to the public. What a great episode with Trent Ball, Associate Vice President of Equity and Access at Southeast Missouri State University. Trent, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your career, and your experience with us, and also for taking a little deep dive with us on the Batman lore. So much appreciate that. Remember, you too can be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Send us a message via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Let us know that you'd like to be on the podcast. Or you can also nominate a staff, alum, or current student to be on the podcast. If you'd like to feature your entire program or part of your staff or part of your students, we're flexible. We can do that as well. Just send us a message. A huge thanks to our a huge thanks to our sponsors Angelica Villalpando, Rosario O'Reilly, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the podcast. You too can be a sponsor of the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Head on over to Patreon. Select your patron level. We have level one at a dollar a month. A dollar a month does go a long way in supporting this podcast. If you own a business and would like to sponsor the podcast while inserting an ad in the podcast for future broadcasts, we can certainly do that for you. Head on over to Patreon, select the business partnership level. For $100 a month, you can insert your ad on this podcast. I want to take a moment to thank our honorary members of the Let's Talk Trio podcast, Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Roderick Chambers. 
the Let's Talk Trio podcast team is Amelia Castañeda, script supervisor, producer, marketing manager, and social media manager. John Russell, IT advisor, editor, and music producer. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Please support us in any way. We also have a PayPal account uh, that you can leave a tip with, and we will post that on our social media sites. Um, we do not charge for these episodes. Uh, we upload. Uh, we try to keep a uploading schedule for at least three episodes per month. We do take some breaks in between. Uh, we are a volunteer staff, and we don't get paid uh, to to do this podcast. But um, any amount really helps uh, to cover equipment costs, to cover podcast hosting. Uh, costs. Anything uh, really helps any spare change or even a one-time donation really helps us out. So thank you all so much again for continuing to support the podcast, showing us a lot of love on social media, and uh, again for spreading the word. Uh, we love the work we do, and I can speak for myself and for the podcast team that we enjoy this aspect of the podcast is listening to the feedback and uh, from the trio community, uh, a lot of the love that we receive. So thank you all so much. And we will catch you on the next episode.